We'll have you take your Bible with me this morning and turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. We're in the book of Ecclesiastes still this morning. We're going to continue here for, for several weeks. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there are new, fresh copies right behind the door back there. Those are the ESV. That's the translation I'll be reading from this morning. If you don't have a copy, go ahead, stand up, go get one. It's very important. I don't say this often enough, but it's very important that you see these words in front of you. It's incredibly important. These are the words of God spoken to us through the Holy Spirit, inspired, inspired Solomon, the Holy Spirit inspired Solomon to pen these words and they make it into, into scripture this morning. It's vital that you see that I'm not making this stuff up, but that this is what God has communicated about who he is through his word. If you don't have a copy of God's word, there are paper copies in the back too, and feel free to grab one of those, take one of those, Take that home. That's our gift to you as, as well. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, where we'll be this morning. I'm going to read the first 15 verses of this chapter. Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 15. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I've seen the busyness that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceived that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. This is probably the most popular text in the book of Ecclesiastes, one that we're pretty aware of. If you've read through the book of Ecclesiastes, maybe this is one that has stuck, stuck with you. So we're immediately confronted with a question, and that question simply is this, do we know what time it is? Do we know what time it is? Not look at the clock and know what time it is. You'll be probably checking your watch several times. But like, do you know what time it is according to what the preacher is saying here? And especially in the first eight verses of this text. Do you know what time it is? Do you know what season it is in your life? Sure, it's summer. 
but you know the nature and the composition of the season that God has you in currently. If you own a home, you have a lawn, probably. And if you have a lawn, you probably own a lawnmower. Or maybe you own a boat. Or if you have a house, you've probably at some point in your life winterized one of those things. You probably even mowed your lawn last week with that lawnmower. But if you think back a couple months ago when you pulled that lawnmower out, because the time had come to mow for the first time in the spring, did did it start properly? Did it start properly? If you say no, then think back several more months. When I say several, I mean like it seems like an infinite number of months. Back to when you stored that lawnmower away at the end of 2018. Did you do anything with that lawnmower or did you just wheel it into the garage and leave it there until spring? This old house, I'm sure you're familiar with this old house, suggests on their website, gas-powered lawnmowers and trimmers take their share of abuse during the warm months. So some care at the end of the season is vital to keep their parts in good working condition. Replacing the oil, spark plugs, and air filters on mowers and applying a bit of elbow grease to grimy recesses preferably before storing them for winter, will ensure that they rev up with a pull of a cord next year. In the past, when I've had a lawn to mow, I've been both guys. The one who shoves it in the back of the garage and doesn't think about it until it's time to mow again in the spring, and also the guy who's winterized my lawnmower. In the first case, I've cheerfully pulled the cord, or in the former case, I I cheerfully pull the cord and it fires up and I mow my lawn and I'm happy. But when I've neglected my mower and couldn't get it started, this made me frustrated, which is probably an understatement, but I was frustrated. The preacher of Ecclesiastes reminds us at the beginning of chapter 3 that for everything there is a season. A time to mow your lawn and a time to winterize that mower. And what is the implication of this? What is the implication of what the preacher is communicating in Ecclesiastes chapter 3? The implication is very clear, especially in the first eight verses, that we as people are subject to time. We are subject to time. Time moves forward. Yesterday, July 13th, 2019 is behind us. It's gone. We can't get it back. How are we to think about time? How are we to think about seasons? The preacher here gives us the proper perspective. We are a little bit like lawnmowers or boats or houses that need to be winterized. You and I need to recognize the season we're in currently. We need to know what time it is. Is it time to mow or is it time to winterize? When we fail to recognize the season we're in and we ignore what we need now, it makes starting in the next season hard. Another example we might consider is athletes. They have this season when they're playing games and they have the off-season where they're not. Consider someone like the Vikings wide receiver Adam Thielen. 
He had 113 catches last year, 1,373 yards, and nine touchdowns. It's the offseason for the NFL. I saw Adam Thielen on some social media post or on the Vikings website or something. He was working out this week. Adam Thielen isn't currently suiting up. He's not putting on the pads and running routes in a game setting. But he knows that he won't start the next season well in September if he doesn't dedicate himself to hitting the gym and working hard and being prepared when game time comes. So, again, we're all in a season. That's what the first half of this text, verses 1 through 8, tell us. And so we have to ask ourselves, do we know what season we're in? Do we know what we need in the season we're in? Are we hoping for better times in the future? Or maybe some better times of the past? Are we neglecting what we need in the here and now? When we fail to recognize the season in, we're in, again, it's hard to start the next season well. And so maybe you're here this morning and you're in a difficult or a crisis season. Or maybe it's a season of rejoicing and a season of plenty. Do you know what you should be doing? Would you know if it was time to plant or time to harvest? Would you know if it was time to weep or if it was time to laugh? Would you know if it would be time to seek or time to lose? Would you know if it's time to love or hate or for war or for peace? And I think the preacher is calling us out here, and I think this really intersects with our culture well. The meat of what the preacher communicates in verses 9 through 15, we're going to spend the majority of our time there this morning. Verses 1 through 8 operate as this reinforcement, the idea that for everything there is a season. This is his thesis statement. Verse 1, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under the sun. And then he gives us this list of examples. 9 through 15 in chapter 3 give us how we should live in light of the fact that for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. So here's how we're going to spend the remainder of our time this morning. Once we acknowledge, as people, once we acknowledge for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, then what? And that's what 9 through 15 tells us. Then what? Once we acknowledge that, once we get our heads around that, once we begin living like that's the truth, then what? I'm going to give you two things that I think we should see in this passage. I'm just going to give them to you, and we're going to talk about them. It's almost like the conclusion right up front. But I'm going to give these two to you. We're going to unpack them because this is what the so what for the preacher is here in in this text. Once we acknowledge verse 1, then in 9 through 15, we see these two things that should be the result of that acknowledgement. One, we should be joyfully content with what has been given in the current season. And secondly, or two, we should stand in awe of the sheer magnitude of God. These are the two things this morning. So let's take these in turn. First, we should be joyfully content with what has been given in the current season. In the critically acclaimed cinematic masterpiece, Kung Fu Panda, Master Oogway tells Poe 
the protagonist. He says, yesterday is history, tomorrow is a mystery, and today is a gift. That's why they call it present. There's like a dad joke in there, but maybe you're not my kids, and so it just didn't land. You search that internet, and you can find that quote is ascribed to a lot of different people. I think I will stick with Master Uwe. But what is said there is line, in line with the preacher. And I want to point out very specifically this morning, verse 11, especially the first half of that verse, that as we think to ourselves, we should be joyfully content with what has been given in its current season. We ask ourselves, how can that be? How is that possible? I think he answers it for us in verse 11. He, being God, has made everything beautiful in its time. He has made everything beautiful in its time. We're going to fixate on a couple of words here, first being everything. I think we should take everything quite literally here. Everything. In those seasons of plenty and rejoicing, the beauty that God has made in everything is easy for us to see. It's right in front of our eyes. But in seasons of crisis and seasons of difficulty, seeing that beauty is difficult. We must learn to live well in the season God has brought our way. We can learn from the cycles of earth again. The, the preacher goes back to these over and over and over again throughout this book. The cycles of earth. Consider Genesis 8.22. When Noah, you know, Noah in the ark, when Noah steps off the ark onto dry land, God makes a covenant with him that he would not curse the ground again because of man. And God says, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. The earth has these cycles built in. We run through them. God says they will not cease. The earth has seasons. There is beauty in them all. We complain so freely about the snow and the wind and the cold and the heat and the humidity, but we should be seeking the beauty in them. Rightly acknowledging the season we're in helps us see the beauty that's in it. You can expect in January that it will be snowing and cold. You can expect in August that it will be hot and muggy. When we complain about these things, we act like the season we're in shouldn't be the season we're in. But when you know the season, you know what to do. You put on a coat or you put on flip-flops. Proverbs 10.5 He who gathers in summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who brings shame. The one who knows what season it is and acts accordingly is prudent. The one who does not rightly acknowledge the season he is in, it brings shame. So, if you're in the midst of difficulty, you're in the midst of rejoicing, there is beauty in both of those seasons. In difficulty, you may need to dig to see it. You may have to fight for it more than seasons of rejoicing. But the preacher says there is beauty there. He says, he has made everything beautiful in its time. Practically, practically, this gives us the ability to reject 
to reject the cultural worship of the appearance of youth. As we age, we are subjected to time. Our bodies change. You cannot reasonably expect to look like you did or respond, or you have your body respond in the way that it did a decade or two ago. You know this is true. Women, I'm going to say this as plainly as I can, do not fall prey to the world's standards of beauty. The culture is assaulting you with a vision of beauty that is not biblical. Do not succumb to it. Everything is beautiful in its time. He has made everything beautiful in its time. And if you consider beauty to be a 20-something plastered in a magazine at the hair salon, you're never going to believe this truth. Because you know it to be true. Time and pregnancies and a billion loads of laundry weigh you down in the season that you are in. But God has made everything beautiful in its time. You no longer see the 20-something in the mirror because it's a new season. And it's called the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, the 70s. Your daughters and granddaughters are watching. They will take their cues and what you believe to be beauty by what you complain about, wrinkles or gray hair, or what you exalt, the loss of five pounds or a little more arm tone. When your daughters observe you, will they think beauty is found in a magazine or what the Bible says? When Peter writes in 1 Peter 3, 3 and 4, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which God's sight is very present. Men, don't think you're off the hook here. Delight in your wife. Delight in your wife in the season she is in. Defend the God-given beauty in her season. See the beauty that God has made as she pursues godliness and the good of others and the good of her family. Proverbs 31, 28 and 29. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Men, take time even today before you even walk out of this building and exalt your wife. Praise her. Rightly acknowledge the season she is. She is God's given beauty in its time. So, it's important here for us to see in verse 11, he has made everything beautiful in its time. If everything is beautiful or made beautiful by God in its time, we need to know what time it is. even more importantly, is to acknowledge the one acting in verse 11. We sat there in the word everything, but look back to the very first word, the pronoun he. He, the preacher says, has made everything beautiful in time. The he here is God. It is God who makes beauty. And God who has given the season, your season of difficulty, and your season of rejoicing, comes from God. The beauty can be found in each, each in God's handiwork. 
This is not just about having the right mindset or attitude. This is genuinely about God and his purposes. Because God gives the seasons and makes everything beautiful in its season, therefore, back to the top, we should be joyfully content. Do you want to be joyful? Do you want to be content? Do you want to be happy? (laughs) Who doesn't? C.S. Lewis wrote in a letter to a friend, it is a Christian duty, as you know, for everyone to be as happy as he can. And I'm convinced that the preacher is talking about our happiness and our joy and contentment here. But your joyful contentment will only come when you acknowledge the simple truth of verse 11. He has made everything beautiful in its time. For everything there is a season, a time for every matter under heaven. Rebecca and I, this upcoming Friday, will celebrate 11 years of marriage. If we thought that we could celebrate 11 years of marriage like we celebrated year one, (laughs) kids and aging and cycles of life have changed things. Probably just be like an early bedtime or something like that. We're going to be very frustrated if we think that year 11 should look like year one. God has given us this season now. We need to know what time it is. To look back at the beauty of year one would be problematic to try and apply it to year 11. To see the beauty God has made now brings joyful contentment. Not because everything seems awesome all of the time, but because God has seen fit to bring us this season. The preacher says in verses 12 and 13 again, that we should eat and we should drink and take pleasure in our work, even as we saw last week. This is a gift of God. There is beauty that God has made in this season. He has made it. And when we see the seasons God has given, acknowledge the one we're in, and see the beauty God has made in each season, then we get to our second point. The second result of knowing what time it is. The second result of that is we should stand in awe of the sheer magnitude of God. And this is our second point. Look at the second half of verse 11. We've got the first half. He has made everything beautiful in its time. But then the preacher says, also. He has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Now, this is mind-boggling. God has made everything beautiful this time, and he's put an eternity into our hearts. So we have this sense that God has existed for eternity past and will exist into eternity future, but we can't really wrap our heads around it. We can't get our heads there. We don't know exactly what that means or what it looks like. And this helps us realize, serves this purpose, and helps us realize that we are creatures. And as creatures, we stand within time. It is one of our limits. Time is also created. But God is eternal and stands outside of time. God is not changed by time. God, or time, 
cannot alter God's work. We, on the other hand, are changed by time. And time can alter our work and become come outdated or just erode away. But this is not the case with God. Look at verse 14. The preacher says, I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. Whatever God does cannot be altered, changed, or eroded. It endures forever. It cannot be added to or subtracted from. Why has God orchestrated things in this way? Why? The end of verse 14. God has done it so that the people fear before him. So that we will stand in awe of him. So that we will stand in awe of the sheer magnitude of God. We need to meditate on the sheer magnitude, the greatness, the bigness of God. You need to think about it. You get bogged down in your tasks and you get in your little zone and you're doing your thing and you're making headway. When we do that, we often fail to consider that when God does something, it lasts forever. You cannot do that. No created being can do that. Time sets its sights on everyone and everything under the sun. But God is bigger than that. He's not bound to it because he made it. The cycles of the earth come and go, but God stands above them all. This has the effect of preventing us from thinking that God can be caught off guard by our seasons. This has the effect of preventing us from believing that God can be caught off guard by our seasons. What are you going through? You say, This difficult season is upon me. God is far off, but God is not subject to time. The season you are in is orchestrated by him so that you will trust him and see the beauty that he has made in it. It is a pathetic, weak, small, and sickly God who wrings his hands and his people suffer difficulty. If that's your view of God, take note that that's not the preacher's view and it's not a biblical one. Everything that God does endures forever. And every season that you are in, he has designed and it will yield what he designed it to yield and he will call it beautiful. Time and season should cause us to see that we are limited in ways that God is not and stand in awe of his sheer magnitude. I'm going to move right into a couple of concluding thoughts. We should ask the so what So what? We should live joyfully content in light of the season that we are currently in and we should stand in awe of his sheer magnitude. First thought and conclusion. When we stand in awe of his sheer magnitude, it will compel us to worship. This is the grounds and the basis and the motivation for our worship. Some of us stumble in on a Sunday morning and we mumble through a few songs and we check our watch and wonder when we'll get to do the stuff that we want to do. I'm convinced if we really thought, if we really thought about who we were coming to worship, 
when we walked in on a Sunday morning, that we'd be far more engaged, that we wouldn't be so quick to skip out on it when it didn't fit into our summer schedule. In fact, many of us come to a congregational worship on a Sunday morning bent on leaving here to get to our real place of worship, an NFL game or the golf course or manicuring our yard or reading a novel on the porch. Remember, worship is orienting our lives toward and ordering our lives around God. We are constantly tempted to order our life around something that is subject to time. We must start ordering our lives around the one who stands outside of time. And when we realize that, we will be compelled to worship. Worshiping God means standing in awe of his sheer magnitude. Again, the thing that has set its sights on every one of us. God is outside of it. We will never do that. We will never worship God by standing in awe of his sheer magnitude if we think that Sunday morning or even all of the rest of our lives is meant to make us feel good or have unrivaled religious experiences. There's a story about Francis Chan. Maybe you've heard that name. He's an author and a pastor who had a church attender approach him on a Sunday letting him know that they didn't like the worship music that morning. Chan replied, that's okay, we weren't worshiping you. The antidote to the mindset is to see that we are prone to make it all about us and that we must make it all about God. When we seek to know God more, and stand in awe of his bigness. It will compel us to worship. The second thing then is when we stand in awe of his sheer magnitude, it will compel us to know him more. We know God more through his word. This is the primary way that God has given to us to know him. And we should find sufficient reason here to go to his word. And maybe you spend regular quality time in your Bible, or maybe you struggle to open it up and read it. If you struggle to open it up and read it, you're not alone. But it may be because you're going to it for wrong reasons, out of guilt or out of the desire to feel something or have, again, some religious experience. But you have the opportunity to know a really big God. One who has made himself known to you. We often object that we don't have time to go to our Bibles, to read them with consistency, or to study them with others, but the Bible is the word of God, God's perfect word given to us. When we say that we don't have time for our Bibles, we subject God and his word to something it isn't subjected to, time. And we deny what the preacher writes, In verse 14, I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. God has spoken to us his word, and his word attests to the fact that it will stand forever. Isaiah 40, verse 8, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And the preacher here in our text this morning tells us whatever God does endures forever. That includes what he speaks through his word, 
Nothing can be added to it. Nothing can be taken from it, subtracted from it. The word of our God will stand forever. If that doesn't convince you to go to your word to know a really big God, I don't know what will. Why would we treat that which is eternal like that which is temporary? Why would we exchange that which will never end for that which will certainly end? Why would we treat the one whose purposes will endure forever like our own purpose that may change before lunchtime? Final thought this morning. Even though God stands outside of time, he sent his son Jesus into time. Therefore, God is not far off. The reason that God has made everything beautiful in its season is because he is present in every season which he has brought about. Seasons of birth and seasons of death. Seasons of planting and seasons of harvest, killing and of healing. Breaking down and building up, weeping and laughing, mourning and dancing, casting away, gathering together, embracing and refraining from embracing. Seeking and losing, keeping and casting away, tearing and sowing, keeping silent and speaking, loving and hating, seasons of war and seasons of peace. God is not far off this morning. And he proves it through Jesus sending his son into the world to die for the sins of the world. Although God is big and we should stand in awe of his sheer magnitude, we realize he is not far off. He does not leave us to ourselves. The author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 through 16, For we do not have a high priest, this is Jesus he's talking about, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one in who in every respect has been tempted we, as we are yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Your confidence in good seasons and in bad seasons is that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. God is not far off. God is big, bigger than you can possibly imagine. God knows your season. God brought about your season and he has made everything beautiful in its time because he is present in it. I was reflecting this week on a handful of things. I was thinking about how we even approach a Sunday morning and come together and gather together. There's a lot of interaction that happens in this space. And I hope that you're blessed by that interaction that happens. But oftentimes we get the question posed to us on a Sunday morning or wherever we find ourselves throughout the week. I think this is a cultural thing that we need to resist, friends. We say, how are you? And we say, I'm, I'm okay. I'm okay. Friends, the gospel means we are not okay. 
The gospel needs that we need to openly acknowledge that things are not right. There is sin that entangles us, each and every one of us. And outside of the free gift of salvation in Christ Jesus our Lord, we are not okay. That doesn't mean that you need to sit there and complain about everything to someone. But what it does mean is that you need to see a community of faith that stands around you and hear the question, are, how are you? Or are you doing all right? And answer openly and honestly. And I say, I don't want to bog you down with my problems. The word of God in Galatians chapter 6 tells us very clearly that we are to bear one another's burdens. When we come to a text like Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and we see that there is a season for everything, we must realize that each of us is in a season. Sometimes okay really does describe where we're at. Sometimes it doesn't. We need to be open to supporting our brothers and sisters in Christ when the answer is no, it's not okay. And we need to be willing to be honest with one another in our community of faith. Again, this points us to the truth of the gospel. That Jesus Christ, the son of the living God, came to earth, lived a perfect life, and died the death that we deserved. We deserved because we were not okay. He went to the ground. He was buried. He was raised on the third day to rule and to reign at the Father's right hand. God is not far off, friends. Let's pray.